And welcome to the second half of our countdown of numbers 50 through 41 on the Pick 100. So our next number reader, Kevin, we have Stephen Colbert. Uh, he's kind of famous, right? Yeah, and okay. he also he he was uh, at one point talking about the book written by the late Herman Cain. The number 45, a special number that Cain devotes an entire chapter to in his book, This is Herman Cain. This is from the chapter titled 45, and I quote, People often attach great significance to a number. In my case, that number is 45. The number 45 keeps popping up. Cain was born in 1945. He's running to be our 45th president. He met his wife on April 5th, or 4-5. Four, 4 plus 5 is 9, as in 999. Plus, there's that Jim Carrey movie where he becomes obsessed with the number 23. And after 2 and 3 comes 4 and 5. There were four people accusing him of inappropriate sexual advances. Now there are five. And... To keep one of these women quiet, his company paid her $45,000. Splendor! It all coheres! I can see forever! Kevin, one of the things I love about Queen is that people my age were very likely to get into the band with another one by Sadust when that became a mega hit. And although most of us knew some of their other hits, especially We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, discovering the adventure and sheer blast of their previous albums was one of the biggest joys in rock and roll indoctrination that I can remember. This is 1978's Jazz, their seventh album, and perhaps their most sonically frenetic work, which is probably exemplified best in the opening track, Mustafa. I love listening to this song because it seems that maybe the volume got turned down, so you kind of edge it up higher and higher as the song progresses. And then... Freddie Mercury wrote this song, which includes English, Arabic, and Persian and probably some other invented words. It's an amazing opener to the album. It's something you wouldn't expect and it doesn't really make any sense, but it's probably my favorite song on the record. Hmm. And after that, we kind of get the two singles out of the way, which now to me are actually probably the album's least exciting track. And from there, we enter this crazy minefield of varying styles and manic pacing. Enter, 
That one's called Dead on Time, and it's probably their fastest song ever. And although their fans thought it would be awesome to see in concert, they actually never performed it live. Hmm. The album also includes a song called Fun It, a funk song which was probably a precursor to another one bites the dust. Oh yeah. Which is their big single that would explode on their next album, The Game, released only eight months after this one. The album was polarizing, many critics panning it, but it gained a lot more respect in retrospect. Alex Petridis, writing in The Guardian, said, Jazz was hysterical in every sense of the word, but the music press comprehensively failed to get the joke, particularly in the U.S. In 2006, Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times included it in his list of the great albums, describing it as a genre-hopping tour of diverse musical styles, and concluded that what ultimately keeps me coming back to the album, however, is that ambiguous sexual energy running through all 13 tracks. The fact that each of them boasts more hooks than some bands have on an entire album, and the inviting sonic density of it all. I don't know if there's a Queen album where Freddie is more just theatrical, over the top, flamboyant. Yeah. And and it, it's as as that one critic said, it, 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 he called it sexual energy. It's really it it is throughout this whole record. In addition to listening to it for this episode, I also uh, happened to catch uh, Bohemian Rhapsody the movie again, and they sort of cover this at the time where Freddie's out in a lot of the. Uh, he's doing the club scene, basically, the gay club scene in London. And uh-huh. he wants their sound to take on more of the energy that he's he's experiencing in the clubs. Uh-huh. And and I, I, I caught that a lot. Uh, this song in particular, Don't Stop Me Now, I, to me, I, I don't know that there's another Queen song that lends itself to, you know, you want to see it almost in a performed as a, in a musical production. It's interesting too to me that you said you've kind of moved on from the singles. I, to me, Fat Bottom Girls is it just does not get old. I think that's just one of one of their all. Yeah, and I should be clear. I, I do love those songs. I just uh, I, I when I listen to this album though, they actually I kind of I'm wanting them to get over with because after those two songs, <laughs> we just go through a flurry of uh, of great manic tunes. So that's Queen Jazz from 1978 at my number 45. So my next pick, number 45, is the international breakthrough album from Australia's In Excess. Released in the fall of 1985, it's Listen Like Thieves, featuring their first top five single in the U.S., What You Need. In Excess had given us some 80s gold prior to this with songs like The One Thing, Don't Change, and Original Sin. And they really leveraged the power and reach of MTV over the first part of the decade of the 80s to develop a nice niche following. But they hadn't yet climbed to the very highest level where bands like The Police, U2, and even Duran Duran resided. Listen Like Thieves was the start of their ascension into that club. 
So this is the band's fifth studio album, and they're first with legendary producer Chris Thomas, who had worked on the Beatles' White Album, on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and more recently with The Pretenders on their biggest album to date at that time, Learning to Crawl. Here on the album Listen Like Thieves, you hear Thomas guiding In Excess into its most successful period, which included 1987's Kick, their greatest and best-selling album, and 1990's X, which went double platinum. That was the period where I think, and certainly in the, in, in the year of 1988, I think In Excess did actually for a time occupy the space as the biggest band going. And this was sort of the beginning of that process. This is another one of your picks that uh, I listened to, reminding myself that, man, I know this album almost backwards and forwards, even though I haven't listened to it in years, and I kind of forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because for, for me, in my memory, I think Kick just kind of dominated so much that I almost forgot about uh, their older hits, and moving forward, when I think of NXS, it was always about Kick. But you were always a bigger fan than I was of this band. Okay. And of course, we have the legendary trip to Spokane, where we saw them in concert at the Spokane Coliseum. Oh yeah, and to this day, still one of the best live shows I've, I've personally ever experienced because their tour was the biggest thing going, and we got to see them in this little broom closet of an <laughs> arena. I mean, they're playing big arenas, you know, all over the country, and we're up in Spokane in this hockey arena. There was no bad seat in the house, and I can remember high-fiving the guitar player. It was pretty <laughs> cool. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you, Tim Ferriss, lead guitarist for NXS. So that's my number 45 pick, Listen Like Thieves by NXS. The drug haze of Pink Floyd and my four-year-old niece <laughs> mixed together. <laughs> well, so yeah, you're, you're, you're just jumping right in with both feet and introducing her to psychedelic rock. Yeah. My number 44 is Pink Floyd's follow-up to their mega-hit, mega-selling Dark Side of the Moon. This is 1975's Wish You Were Here. This album only has five tracks, and the first is its longest, a tribute to the band's former frontman, Sid Barrett. It opens with eight minutes of instrumental keyboard and guitars before any vocals even start. First 13 and a half minute track is called Shine On You Crazy Diamond, parts one through five. And then the final and fifth track on the album is parts six to nine, another 12 and a half minutes, making the full song 26 minutes, which is five and a half minutes longer than the single side track of Russia's 2112. This was the second record after Dark Side that was a concept album written entirely by Roger Waters. 
The other three tracks on the album are mostly critical of the recording industry, including Welcome to the Machine, and in my mind, one of the best guitar and bass openings to a rock song ever, Have a Cigar. Such a great rock tune. This is a song that I loved before I even knew Pink Floyd did it. It's one of the, I don't know, you could say 20 songs I, I associated most with classic rock as far as their opening guitar riff. And it actually has a guest lead vocalist uh, in Roy Harper. you ever know that no neither of them sang that i didn't know it either word had it the guitarist and vocalist david gilmore just wasn't feeling the song this day and roy harper was in another studio nearby recording and they asked him to come in and do it This song ends with a fairly creative transition, something you might hear a lot nowadays, but was kind of unique back then. It transitions into Wish You Were Here by basically going to a radio-type sound and scanning the dial for another song. And the next song on the dial was the title track, Wish You Were Here, another rock staple from my youth. Even though it was their fastest selling record ever upon its release, it wasn't so well received at first after the grandeur that was Dark Side, but it gained more respect later and is considered now to be one of the greatest records of all time. Band members David Gilmore and Richard Wright have both said it is their favorite Floyd album. Dude, is it my turn to talk yet? <laughs> yes, dude. I just took a bong hit. I'm really feeling it right now. I can't tell you how many times uh, this album played uh, from the third floor of my house growing up, and I'm pretty sure my brothers were getting high every single time. <laughs> this particular track, by the way, just a quick shout. This is my favorite Pink Floyd song ever. Oh, really? I just think this, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a sucker for songs that have that slow build and then... You know, just continue to blossom as you go along. But love the vocal, love the the acoustic guitar. Just and when it reaches its its full crescendo, it's just such a great track. An album, Jeff. I wanted so bad to be in my top 100, but I just haven't listened to it enough. Yeah, I never really thought about what my favorite Pink Floyd song was, but if I had my top 10. The three songs from this album would all be on it, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. It's almost, I mean, you make a good point that the blend between Have a Cigar and this one almost makes it a unit, you know, almost like the three songs on Led Zeppelin 2 that you always have to play yeah. back to back to back. It's kind of the same feel here. It was one of those albums I didn't really discover until college as an album, even though I'd heard most of it on the radio many times. And I have to say, I have to say Shine 
you know, is one of those songs that nearly brings me to tears just because of, of the mm. loss of uh, Sid Barrett and how much they uh, adored him. And he basically went crazy. And there's an interesting story you can read about on, on their Wikipedia page for this album, how when they were recording it, this kind of fat guy uh, carrying a plastic sack came into the studio when they were recording it, and they didn't know who he was at first and slowly realized it was Sid. Mm. He said he was there to record the album, help him record the album with him, but oh my gosh. he didn't stay very long and said a lot of things that didn't make sense and left, and it really left the band really sad. Oh my gosh. I did not know that story, actually. I, I had not really ever heard about what the, the transition was off of you know the, the, the Sid Barrett period and then the, the stretch of records that came after him that are the ones everyone right. knows about. And I have to say, even though it... it, it was on the bubble and didn't make my top 100 that their first album with Sid Barrett Piper at the Gates of Dawn is a really interesting listen it's really it's really mm. funny parts um, and it's very psychedelic but I recommend everybody check it out just to know the roots of this band that's my number 44 from 1975 Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here so for my number 44 pick it's an album depicting a world fraught with rampant consumerism social alienation, emotional isolation, and political malaise. Not exactly a marketer's dream, but somehow it sold nearly 8 million copies. From 1997, it's OK Computer from Radiohead. This song is Paranoid Android, the first single from OK Computer. Critical praise for this record was nearly unanimous. Radiohead put aside its heavier, grungier, guitar-centric sound from its previous albums, and as singer Tom York described, tried to achieve, quote, an atmosphere that's a bit shocking when you first hear it. I suppose to their hardcore fans it was shocking with songs built around acoustic guitar and piano like this one, Karma Police. In the minds of many critics and fans, OK Computer reached rarefied air as one of the two signature rock albums of the 1990s, right alongside Nirvana's Nevermind. The band, in true Radiohead style, though, felt that such praise was exaggerated, rejecting frequent comparisons to legendary works like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. To this point, York said, quote, We write pop songs. There was no intention of this being art. It's a reflection of all the disparate things we were listening to when we made it. Jeff, for me, OK Computer is one of only a few albums that when I go back and listen to them, I find something new. It's just such an amazing mix of textures and sound that it's really best to you know just kick back with the headphones or the earbuds and take it all in. It's not one of those that I like to necessarily listen to while I'm doing other stuff. And in doing so, you just realize what an achievement this record was. Well, a couple episodes ago, you asked me, do you ever have one of those songs that I pick that you think, ah, oh, maybe I should have had this on the list? And I said, no. 
<laughs> yes, I remember it. It's uh, I'm still I'm still healing from that rejection, Jeff. I'm standing by that. Except this is the closest <laughs> you've come okay. to an album that I that very closely made my list, and I did consider it. I did listen to it before we started this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Probably 102 or 103 or something. Mm-hmm. And when I listened to it again uh, uh, last week for the prep for the show, I thought, eh, maybe it should have been on there. But, uh, you know, it is awesome. I remember buying it and being excited about it. And I, but for some reason, I didn't really stick with it. and didn't listen to it a whole lot like I usually do when I get a new album that I love. And uh, revisiting it now, it's just brilliant. You know, one thing that throws me off, though, is uh, the song where the computer is talking. <laughs> Right, and right. it's not very long, but it's just kind of annoying. And and when 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 they throw something like that in the middle of an album, it it, it, it drags it down a little more than it probably should for me. Interesting. And that's one thing I always remember about this album, especially because it has "computer" in the title. I just think of that stupid computer voice. Yeah. But I shouldn't <laughs> let that distract me, and nor should anyone else, because it's a work of art. Right. Well, even today that you go back and listen to maybe part of the annoying piece is that it's not even a high-tech computer sound. I mean, it's it's something that sounds like early, yeah. you know, sort of primitive technology. Right? right, yeah. Yes, but I commend you highly on this pick. Thank you. Well, you know, we've only got 43 more to go, so I'm fingers crossed that I might find another gem that yeah, well, you know, could you're, have been worthy of your list. You'll slowly build the build back the wall that you completely destroyed with Back in Black earlier than this. <laughs> All right. Well, not reluctantly, that's my <laughs> my number 44 pick. Okay, computer, Radiohead. If Liz Fair is the queen of 90s indie pop, well, PJ Harvey might be the queen's goth sister. This is her fifth studio album from 2000. Stories from the city, stories from the sea. I got hooked onto Harvey with her 1994 release, To Bring You My Love, which ranks higher on my list. It was one of the tent poles in my early transition into more eclectic music. And after that album, she released Is This Desire, which, while still good, was a bit of a letdown after love. So my hopes were probably tepid for this release, but she blew me away. It was somewhat of a departure, less dark both lyrically and sonically. This is one of the record's standouts, also with a great title, The Whore's Hustle and The Hustler's Whore. Speak to me, universal law. The whore's hustle and the hustler's whore. There really is no bad song here. It just moves so confidently through its 12 tracks. But for me, it really picks up about halfway through with that last track followed by The Mess We're In where Radiohead's Tom York sings lead and Harvey is basically backup. Harvey and York had known each other for years and Harvey liked the idea of someone else singing a whole song on her record. Another favorite is This Is Love, an excellent rocker which is a bit more upbeat in theme than most of her lyrics. This one also has an excellent video. I think it shows her sense of humor and just her basically potential of having raw power as a rock artist. This is 
just her against a white background playing the guitar in an Elvis-like white suit. She's just really in love, and that's fine. I'll link the video on our website. And perhaps the best song is the last one, called We Float, which starts off with the usual PJ Harvey darkness, but transitions into a sweetly sublime chorus. We wanted to find love. We wanted success. About this album, Harvey said, having experienced with some dreadful sounds on Is This Desire and To Bring You My Love, where I was really looking for dark, unsettling, nauseous-making sounds, Stories from the City was the reaction. I thought, no, I want absolute beauty. I want this album to sing and fly and be full of reverb and lush layers of melody. I want it to be my beautiful, sumptuous, lovely piece of work. She did, however, concede jokingly that it was only pop according to PJ Harvey, which is probably as unpop as you can get according to most people's standards. This album earned her third nomination for the Mercury Prize, which awards the best British album of the year. And this time she won it. It was actually on September 11, 2001, and she was in Washington, D.C. and saw the plane crash into the Pentagon from a hotel window, then later accepted the award over the phone. It's been a very surreal day, she said. Kevin, I know I've kind of introduced you to P.J. Harvey over the last year. What did you think of this album? Liked it a lot, actually. Um, I would say the moodier tracks like this one like we float and um the, the the mess we're in with tom york those those more or less pulled me in the punkier stuff it was something that I, it, it's odd it's something that it's easier to connect with or that i i'm more more kind of accepting of after i've kind of launched into an album with tracks like we float or uh, the mess we're in. I don't know why that is, but it just doesn't necessarily click for me right away when it's kind of that angry, punky stuff. Yeah, I actually think this album might be uh, a better album than To Bring You My Love, but uh, just the resonance for me uh, at that point in the early 90s when I heard To Bring You My Love is why I consider it a, a bigger favorite. But listening to this album, especially revisiting it over the last couple weeks, every time, you just every song that comes on, you're like, oh yeah, this one too. Um, mm -hmm. There's just so many great uh, tunes on it. I think it probably is her masterpiece. I like the quote, too, early about how she was really trying to make music that took flight and had a lot of layers and textures. I mean, that's kind of the Radiohead approach of, the, of that era as well. So it's interesting to, to, to hear her go down that path. Yeah, someone who I've unfortunately never seen live, and I wish I could, and I hope I still can, because she's still out there making music. PJ Harvey's Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea from 2000 is my number 43. Okay, up next for me, it launched an amazing solo career, but also, sadly, it marked the end of my favorite band. At number 43, it's Dream of the Blue Turtles from Sting. Under the ruins of a walled city, crumbling tiles and beams of yellow lights. So that's the second single from the album, Fortress Around Your Heart. The record debuted in the summer of 85, about a year after the biggest band on the planet, the police, had concluded their synchronicity tour playing Shea Stadium, which, by the way, only the Beatles had done previously. 
It seems silly looking back now, but at the time there was still a realistic expectation that the police would continue and soon release their sixth album. Instead, we got something very different. In going his own way, the police frontman assembled a backing band of four black jazz musicians and two black female backing singers and gave us a sound 180 degrees from the police. As heard there on the album's lead single, If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. Blue Turtles even includes a remade song from the police catalog, Shadows in the Rain from 1980's Zenyatta Mandata. I didn't realize it at the time, but I now see that this was Sting's way of basically saying, not only am I going to do my own thing, but I'm going to do police music my own way as well. He was doing it his own way, and boy did it work. This solo debut went triple platinum in the US and reached number two on the album charts, and produced two top 10 singles, Fortress Around Your Heart, and If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. Jeff, Dream of the Blue Turtles was one of the first records I bought and listened to nonstop because it introduced a whole new world of music to me through one of my favorite artists. As a teenager, I had no real you know, previous exposure to jazz, but here, I got a first taste of it. And even though today I'm by no means a jazz aficionado, giving this record a chance and eventually getting into it was one of my first experiences in learning to appreciate music outside of the very defined formulas and structures of pop and rock during the 70s and 80s. Yeah, this is a great album. It's like a, pretty much like Ten Summoners Tales that you had on a previous uh, episode. It reminded, listening to it reminded me that, oh yeah, I loved this album when it came out. Yeah. It seems like for me, Nothing Like the Sun, which is my favorite Sting album, so overwhelmed my consciousness that I forgot that he released other great albums. <laughs> and so I was glad to be reacquainted with this because again, I recognized every song and I really enjoyed listening to it again. I hadn't heard much uh, before about how this kind of marked the end of the police. When he released this, did uh, it kind of piss off the other band members? I know there. I don't believe it did. It just was a marker that basically said, "Okay, this is his next choice." Um, and around the time that um, this came out, right in the middle of the summer of '85, you know, of course, it was Live Aid, right in the middle of July, and Sting performed. Uh, a set with Phil Collins, but not with uh, his police bandmates. And uh, yeah. uh, very subdued, and actually Branford Marcellus, the, the saxophone player on this record, was on stage with him as well. And so there were just a lot of little hints. I mean, most you know diehard police fans like me just kept thinking, oh yeah, but how could they possibly not have a next album? And then about within a year or so of this, they released the greatest hits record with this absolutely crappy version of Don't Stand So Close to Me called Don't Stand So Close to Me 86. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Just a piece of crap. And then that pretty much, that's when you started to hear, oh, it's over. Um, yeah. And I mean, tension was really kind of the backbone of the police and part a big reason, you know, why they were great. I mean, uh, 
Eddie Summers at their Hall of Fame speech said, oh, jokingly, oh, there's no ego in this band. But there was, ego was a big reason why they were so great. And hindsight gives you a clearer picture, obviously, but this was definitely a sign that things were going in a different direction. So that's my number 43 pick, Dream of the Blue Turtles from Sting. Time for another visit to The Pick Line. Hey, this is Lance. I finally caught up with listening to all your stuff. I love the show. It's nice and positive. No negativity. My taste in music, obviously, is pretty narrow compared to what you guys have. Picking whole albums might be a little difficult for me, besides Back in Black as far as an album. I love that thing, of course. But on my Pandora, I sure listen to a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan, Frank Sinatra, Toby Keith, Motorhead, ZZ Top, Pink Floyd, Lenny Kravitz, Sabbath, Santana, Bob Marley. Anyways, listen to all, all your shows. You guys really are good. Enjoyable, but you've been hiking with me and in the car a lot. How do I know when the next one comes up? Is there a post on Facebook or something, or how do I know when the next one comes up? Anyways, thanks for putting on such a great thing and keeping me entertained. Love you guys. Bye. Playing a little Stevie Ray Vaughan here, an artist who I'm sure we both adore, but probably won't be on our list. True. True on both counts. I was really kind of thinking, wow, Jeff's about to go into a medley of Stevie Ray, Motorhead, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Marley. Now, that would be interesting. Yeah, quite an eclectic list, huh? Oh, yeah. Going from uh, Frank Sinatra to Motorhead. He did ask a good question at the end. How do we know when a new pick episode is out? Do you know, Kevin? I heard there's this uh, thing everyone's doing called social media. Maybe we ought to try that. That's a good way. Well, the best way, though, is to subscribe to our website, thepickcast.com. That will send you an email with when a new episode arrives. And we don't inundate your inbox with a junk, just maybe two, three emails per month. But definitely when a new episode comes out. I like it. And that's thepickcast.com. We also, you can also follow us on Facebook at the Pickcast, Twitter at the Pickcast, and also Instagram at the Pickcast. And that also includes the Pick Daily, which is a recommendation from us every day. That's our Instagram feed at the Pickcast. So I appreciate Lance giving us that cue. To I didn't. I hadn't realized I'd been in the car with him or hiking. So that was. I'm glad he cleared that up. Yeah, it was funny. He first told me he uh, was driving to Wyoming in the snow to go hunting, and I told him, "Oh, you should listen to our podcast in the car." And that was the first time he listened to it. And since, and then from there, he binged our entire library of 20-some episodes. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's one of our biggest fans. And you are the Pied Piper of this show. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the only album on my list that is here due to only one song. When that song is 20 and a half minutes, taking up the entirety of side one, it might make some sense. From 1976, this is 2112 by Rush, their fourth studio album and the one that broke them into superstardom.
Although officially one track, if you're skipping through the CD or playlist, it is actually divided into seven parts, and it tells the story of a future world controlled by benevolent priests who reside in the Temple of Syrinx. This was their second concept record, mostly written by lyricist and poet and drummer Neil Peart. It followed their unsuccessful Caress of Steel and a lackluster, undersold tour. The band was at a low point, and the record company wanted something more radio-friendly than the long, literary pieces that dominated Caress of Steel. But Neil and the boys, Geddy Lee on vocals and bass, Alex Lifeson on guitar, wanted to remain true to their prog rock vision and delivered this lengthy story filling the entire first side. For a 70s and 80s rock fan, this is iconic hard rock. I mean, I know every note of this song and many of the lyrics, although they are sometimes difficult to discern from Lee's screeching high notes over the pounding of all three instruments. Kevin, I can't remember exactly when I discovered this song because it obviously does not really get much radio play, but I, uh, I believe it was in college working at the radio station, and I'm, I'm just kind of sometimes amazed at how well I know this song and how many times I must have listened to it because it is like the back of my hand. Yeah, my entry point into the, the world of Rush was uh, moving pictures, but this one quickly followed because uh, the local, uh, at the time, you know, album rock station here in Portland, KJON, would play this tune and Temples of Syrinx, you know, as one unit um, in pretty heavy rotation. And, you know, for a 12 or 13 year old, uh, really embracing an instrumental was a little unusual. You know, it just at that age, it kind of strikes you as an odd song to get into. But there's so many cool moments in that first segment. I guess they, they call it Overture, correct? Yeah. And just the transitions, the, the the stretch where Lifeson's just ripping the guitar, but then they go into kind of that that marching band uh, riff towards the end. Crazy good, and uh, a chance to give my usual plug or my my uh, semi regular plug. If uh, for those are there are Netflix subscribers, you simply must spend the time to watch the documentary Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage gives a great story about what you described, Jeff, earlier, where the band is really kind of on the, the brink of being dropped by their record company, and they deliver this, basically saying, if we're going out, we're going out the way we want to do it, and this record just blew up. What can this strange device be? When I touch it, it gives forth a sound. Yeah, it's interesting that they did not deliver what the record execs wanted, but this somehow broke through, whereas Caress of Steel, which is, you know, similar in structure to this side one of this album, didn't yeah. break through at all. And, and you know, it shows today, when you listen to Caress of Steel, it just does not have the same kind of impact or power as this. It, it, feels, it feels somewhat meandering, and although, you know, definitely a lot of skill behind it, just right. not the way this first side of this album works. Well, and it should be said too, this, most of the credit, as you mentioned, uh, 
and, and properly so, needs to go to Neil Peart uh, because what you're hearing is really his imagination at work here. I mean, the other two band members, of course, you know, play critical roles and make major contributions, but the whole concept itself, this is, this is Pert's masterpiece right here. Side two is really like a totally separate album. I would say a decent but not great Rush album. Definitely lighter in tone than the serious literary heft of side one, with themes running from where to obtain the world's best marijuana in Passage to Bangkok. <laughs> yes, yes, there's moments in their live shows where Alex Lyson and the crowd sort of have this unspoken interaction about what they're singing about. I think it might be where the, the first use of the, of the term smoke rings Alex gets a little smile on his on his face and sort of nods to the crowd because it's sort of the the worst kept secret, you know, what this song is really about. It also includes a romantic ballad and even an ode to the Twilight Zone TV series. I, I saw them on their last tour and they where they did the whole catalog. I think it was uh, from the modern day all the way back to their first record and close the, the set with Working Man. And Getty just, you know, he, he can't go there anymore. So I just chuckle because there, there really was no voice like that ever, I think, uh, in certainly in hard rock. Yeah, I remember being a little bit off-put when I first got into some of this older Rush stuff by his voice, but yeah. I quickly uh, let it grow on me because uh, everything else surrounding it is so amazing and it just fits right in. Yeah, at first it is, it is a little peculiar, and then in the context of all that's going on, it's the perfect compliment. So this is from 1976, Rush's 2112, their fourth studio album, and the one that really made them big. And really, it's all about side one, the track called 2112, probably the most important track ever in terms of early progressive rock or prog rock. My next pick, it's cliche, but almost needs no introduction. One of the first game-changing albums in the rock era. From 67 and the Summer of Love, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, lauded as one of the first concept albums in rock, and one that advanced the roles of the producer, of sound composition, extended form, psychedelic imagery, and even record sleeves in popular music. It also gave us a song that for the first time was an obvious association with drug use by the Beatles. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Of course, that's John Lennon's crazy, spacey, goofy, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. And it seems to be an established fact now. This song is code for 
LSD, Lucy, L, Sky, S, Diamonds, D. I, I think we can all accept that. If there's a Mount Rushmore of great rock albums, I don't know how you leave this one off. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band has to be there. And oh, by the way, it also contains this song, A Day in the Life, which has ranked as the number one rock single of all time on numerous lists over the years. Jeff, I probably listened to this record first when I was four or five years old. I've mentioned it before, my oldest sister, rest in peace, was a card-carrying, an actual card-carrying member of the original Beatles fan club. I listened to all of her Beatles records when I was a young lad. But this one, as a concept album, I think that held unique appeal for a young kid, particularly with the colorful and crazy album cover. I mean, I can remember staring at that thing the entire time while I listened to this record. Yeah, it's a lot to stare at. Lots of stuff going on in that picture. I had this in my 90s, like 96, I think. And I think it's a good example of how we're doing this show, not what we feel are the best albums of all time, but our favorites. You know, when, when I play an album like The Chemical Brothers, I'm not trying to say it's a better album in history than Sgt. Pepper's. It's just something that I probably enjoy listening to more. But this one makes my list because, mostly because of this song, I think. I mean, every song on it is good but this one being the closing of the album and just it's just iconic in so many ways i hadn't heard actually that it's often considered the best single of all time another coincidence again we have this right after rush's concept album this of course being nine years before Rush's concept 2112. And I think the Beatles with this really kind of laid the groundwork for that kind of prog rock in the 70s. Most definitely. And I, I disagree slightly only in the sense that there's a, a, an absolute throwaway song for me on this record. I think it's, John, it's, uh, it's, it's Lennon's uh, Good Morning, Good Morning, or whatever it is. Oh, I actually, I actually, I, it's not my favorite, but I actually enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's that's a theme I think we'll, or a, an idea we're going to get into a little further as we move our way through this list. Like, you know, little blemishes on great albums. Yes. But uh, despite that blemish, I mean, this thing, this record, number one in Rolling Stone's first 500 greatest albums list in 2003, also topped their list in 2012. Uh, in the 2020 version, however, it's now at 24, which seems like a big stretch to me, but whatever. Uh, I think that just shows the, the, the younger generations that were involved in the making of the 2020 list that it dropped yeah. so far. But And in recent years, truthfully, I haven't listened to Sgt. Peppers as often as the other three Beatles albums that will be higher on my list. So for today, it's number 42, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I can't believe you dissed the barnyard wonder of good morning. <laughs> well, yeah, I also read recently that John John Lennon song is inspired, I think, by language on a breakfast cereal box. So <laughs> I don't know if he was uh, tapping into any deep creative reservoir when he wrote that. All right. For my number 41, this one came, I would say, at the tail end of my electro renaissance. 
After Chemical Brothers, Groove Armada, Propeller Heads, and Massive Attack, from 2001, this is Simple Things by Zero Seven. And this song is Destiny, its biggest single and most recognizable track, with vocals by Sophie Barker and Sia Furler, who we know today simply as Sia. Both singers appear on multiple tracks here. Easily one of my favorite songs of all time. Zero Seven is a couple of British guys, again, the same story as every band I just mentioned in the intro. It's always two <laughs> British dudes. These guys were engineers for other groups before they decided to make their own music, and one of them actually had received an additional sampling credit on Radiohead's album Kid A. This album's a little closer in feel and sound to Moon Safari by Air, an album I ranked in the 90s. Air is actually two French dudes, so at least there's some difference there. It's really ultimate chill-out music. A bit hallucinatory, so Kevin, strike up that bong again, because this would flow pretty seamlessly after Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's interesting. What The, the first, first uh, track I sampled from this was Destiny, and I thought, wait a second, are we going into some... Uh, 90s R&B here, or what, what, where are we where are we going? Uh, but it was just kind of a, a momentary vibe in that one track. Uh, this was an easy add to the old Apple's uh, Apple Music library for me. It's perfect background. Put it in the headphones. I'm working on stuff, and it just provides that nice context uh, all the way through. Uh, excellent choice. Yeah, you said it all the way through too. I just. Uh, every song in this album is just sublime, and I'm, I'm playing their uh, the biggest, maybe you could say biggest hits from this album, even though they didn't really do that great on the charts. But it's just uh, the eclectic channel I listen to, KCRW. These songs are just staples since this album came out in 2001, and I can listen to this album anytime and then start it over again right afterwards. That's my 41st favorite album of all time from Zero Seven, Simple Things. <laughs> okay, reggae meets rock with a side dose of punk attitude in my number 41 pick. It's Outlandos de Moi, the 1978 debut album from The Police. You don't have to wear that dress tonight. 
That song, of course, is Roxanne, the band's very first single, written by lead singer Sting about a man who falls in love with a prostitute. Upon its initial release, this song basically did nothing, failing to chart in the UK and the US. But when it was released in 1979, it got up to number 12 in the UK and actually into the top 40 in the States. Today, guitarist Andy Summers calls Roxanne their signature tune with its instantly recognizable opening guitar work and Sting's one-of-a-kind vocals. In 2008, the song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. By 1984, the police were undoubtedly the world's biggest band. And it's actually this song that might be the one that lit the spark. Side two of Outlandos opens with Can't Stand Losing You, a song Sting wrote about teen suicide. It's their second single, and the first to make the UK charts, helped by some controversy. The sleeve for this record depicted drummer Stuart Copeland, seen from behind, nearly hanging from a noose, the tips of his shoes just barely touching a melting block of ice. Because of this imagery, along with the subject matter, the song was originally banned by the BBC. However, it's likely that this controversy energized the song's popularity and eventually landed it on the charts. Outlandos de moi, which actually translates to outlaws or commandos of love, wasn't received particularly well by critics and was not an initial commercial success. Eventually though, it reached platinum status with more than a million units sold in the US but that wasn't until several years later, and was largely due to the band's explosion in popularity with its subsequent albums. Retrospective reviews, however, have been more favorable. By 2003, Rolling Stone had reversed its original position on Outlandos and ranked the record in its original list of 500 greatest albums of all time, coming in at number 434. It also ranked at 428 on the 2012 revised edition of the list. Interestingly enough, too, the magazine has ranked Outlandos number 38 on its list of 100 best debut albums of all time, describing the band as post-punks who could actually play their instruments, absorbing reggae and jazz into the spare, bouncy sound of their debut album, a record that didn't quite sound like anything before it. Jeff, I think that sums it up pretty darn well. This was a sound that hit during the punk explosion, but it had a more sophisticated twist, and it really started something special. Well, I gotta say, one of the biggest suspense elements for me on doing this show is how you will rank U2 and the Police albums. <laughs> so we have, uh, this is the second Police album that you've ranked now. Yeah. After Ghost in the Machine. Are Regatta and Zenyatta generally considered better albums critically than this one? Yes, I believe so. With their second album, Regatta de Blanc, 
I've read reviews that basically say, you know, that was an album that changed music. When comparing that second record to this one, the second chapter is a more refined sound. This, what you're hearing on this first record was a band basically with very little money, trying to find snippets of time in a studio and just recording what they could when they could. The second record, much more rehearsal, much more time spent together playing, and the sound of that record, which is much higher in my list, will be reflected when you listen to that one. As we've discussed before, I have no police on here, and um, I've gained your scorn. <laughs> um, I do believe this is my favorite police album, though. It, uh, I did consider it. It was at one point in the 90s before it got unceremoniously pushed down. You're playing the last track here, uh, Masaka Tango? Yeah, Masoko Tanga. Yes, yeah. and before that, uh, the song Be My Girl Sally is just a blemish on rock history. <laughs> I, I definitely uh, accept some albums uh, that have a song I don't like, but this uh, song is just basically lame. Right. <laughs> it's about a guy falling in love with a sex doll. It has a spoken word section. It just It's just kind of dumb. Um, it does detract this album for me. But yes. I, I won't say that it's the only reason it falls off, although oh, okay. we've kind of joked about that before. It's the Andy Summers uh, piece, right? Right, right. No, you're describing it. It's the big ugly wart on the nose of this record. So Andy Summers uh, contributes something to each record. It's usually a low point. I would say that there may be one or two moments that Andy contributes that are worth listening to more than once. Yes, I mean, their biggest album, Synchronicity, has perhaps his most horrible contribution, but we'll get to that in a subsequent episode. Okay, good. <laughs> so that's my number 41 pick, uh, Outlandos de Moi, the debut record from The Police. So now we have left is the top 40. We're into Casey Kasem territory now, right? I know. I think he. I think he might make a, an appearance now that we are in his territory of uh, the top forty. Right. If if only we could get his jingle singers to do something like Jeff and Kevin's top forty. <laughs> yeah, I wonder where they are. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Anna could do that. <laughs> Actually, maybe I'll yeah. Maybe I'll head up my sister to see if she can get her to sing Jeff and Kevin's top forty. That'd be cute. So there we have it. We've uh, entered into the top 50 territory of our Pick 100, and we're getting into the nitty-gritty now. I'm already excited for the next list of 10 to share with you. But I hope we see our next uh, lightning strike where some fortunate piece of work lands at the exact same spot on, <laughs> on both lists. Yeah, I think chances get more, but we've broken the ACDC seal. I've gotten uh, Liz Fair on the list now. You've done Two Police. We've gotten Nirvana. A lot more big ones to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and some surprises. Um, I look forward to more of that exploration of, I guess, the way to say it is, what were you thinking there? <laughs> and uh, to our listeners, the pick line is open. And I know there are some listeners out there who are following the pick 100 religiously, but have not yet called the pick line. So come on, guys. Just do it. Yeah, step for it up, really. The pick it's a phone call. 3-4. That's 484-374-2534. Call the pick line. Tell us your favorite albums, or you can give us what spice you prefer, which freeway you take to work, anything you'd like. Whatever your pick is, we'll play it back on the show. So that's it for this episode of The Pick 100. Join us next time. Music for The Pick by Audio Nautics from Portland, Oregon. I'm Jeff Payne. I'm Kevin Toon. So long, everybody. 